to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Whitty. Get ready to go against the grain. We have another full show for you today. As we do every day, we'll update you on the Brooklyn subway shooting, on developments in the Ukraine war, on Saudi Arabia. We have some tech issues to talk about, and we're going to discuss the environment. But first, a few bigger issues in the news. Right. uh, Brooklyn Beckham got married a couple of days ago. (laughs) (laughs) You threw me for a second. I was like, what? What is she talking about? Exactly. The photos are there in Vogue if you want to look at them. Sorry, I just there was a joke. And you know what? I, I, I hate to even say this, but they are above all of the other stories in the New York Post today, except the subway right. shooting. Right, right, right. Uh, there, there was a lot of joking about how unfortunate it is that all the Beckham sons have to be in photographs with their dad, who still, you know eats all the scenery for them. But yeah, no, there's a, you know, we've had some time to consider the implications of this shooting on the Brooklyn subway yesterday. And what you can see from New York social media is a lot of very frustrated people pointing out that the, Mm -hmm. the, the New York police department spends $10 billion a year on policing the city. It has its own counter uh, counter terrorism unit. Yeah. You know what? I read yesterday that the New York city uh, police department, is bigger than all standing armies in the world except the 11 biggest countries. Mm -hmm. And that they have liaison offices in something like seven foreign countries. Yeah, they go traveling. I mean, I understand it is a big city and it has been the site of major terrorist attacks. So it's not completely comic that it would have an anti-terrorism unit. But this is a huge, huge financial commitment. Uh, that the city Huge. makes every year. It has its own anti-terrorism unit. You had people all over social media yesterday saying you cannot swing a cat in a subway station without hitting a police officer. Right. You have officers there on the lookout for turnstile jumpers yeah. and for homeless people seeking shelter in the train or the train station. Uh, but yet yesterday, a man was able to walk in wearing a reflective vest. Right. Yeah. yeah. Throw a couple smoke bombs, open fire on people, injure, injure 10 people with a shoot 10 people, I guess, and injure 16 and just walk straight out. And now you have the city uh, asking for the public's help in finding this man, Frank James, who's yeah, gone from how, person how of interest hard. to suspect. Now. That's right. And also notably, sorry, this is this is from an AP story yesterday. Um, the MTA announced last fall it had put security cameras in all 472 subway stations city, saying that would put criminals on an express track to justice. Mm-hmm. But at the station where the train arrived, the cameras were malfunctioning. I mean, so nobody could, you know, prevent this, which I think might have been a tall order. People do make random attacks, right? Yeah, sure. But then no one was able to spot this guy and the equipment that you paid all this money for doesn't work. I mean, it's just a joke. This is a guy who rented a U-Haul truck, dropped the key at the site of the shootings, was on YouTube ranting about how much he hates the city and hates the mayor and threatening the mayor admitting that he's mentally ill and was in the city's mental health system and they still can't find him. And he's 62 years old. He's not like, you know, a professional terrorist. He's just going to blend into society. Yeah, a, a 62 year old mentally ill man and they can't find him. And also, John, I remember this morning we talked about these uh, reports that he was known to the FBI. Yes. 
He's known to the FBI, but he had been dropped from their uh, their list of people they were keeping tabs on yeah, in 2019. Because they, they had concluded that he was all talk. He wasn't going to actually act out, act on any of these threats. Whoops. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. And, and then, so you know, again, another terrible thing. I, I think people are sorry. I just want to say sure. like, people are upset about this because what they are preparing for is uh, more funding for police, more police around to do things. And they're saying it's obviously not working. It didn't protect us from this. What we saw were, you know, people putting tourniquets on the injured, et cetera. Yeah. What, what did not prevent this from happening has not yet caught this guy and certainly doesn't seem to have, uh, you know, been able to help the people in the moment were the police. And, you know, after this took place yesterday morning, the shooting was at 830 in the morning. Uh, the cops, of course, like closing the barn door after the animals all get out. Uh, the cops all rushed to Brooklyn and everybody's now involved in this shooting. Did you know that after the shooting yesterday, 15 other people were shot in New York City in random attacks? random crimes 15 more people in one day so yeah new york city's falling apart. again which is not to say that police should be uh, uh omniscient and omnipotent no, and but that do should, you know job. but it, but it is just this is our only response to crime and could we please try another one that's right that, i think is the point here totally agree we told our listeners uh last week that two men were arrested in washington for apparently running some sort of an intelligence operation uh, we concluded against four secret service agents one of the men has since claimed to be an officer of the Pakistani intelligence service, which the Pakistani embassy is jumping up and down to deny. Um, frankly, I believe them. The initial charges against these two include now bribery and conspiracy. Nothing at all in the way of espionage. At least not yet. Uh, but the director of the Secret Service said yesterday that the four Secret Service agents have been suspended and they've had their security clearances suspended as well. One of them was on the security detail of the first lady and the other was on the security detail of uh, the vice president. Yeah, I mean, this seems like a very serious breach, very, a serious. very serious security breach, considering the men that these two. So it wasn't the two men who it was they were bribing members. They had sort of uh, confided in and yes. developed a close relationship with members on the on the vice president and the first lady's security detail. But yeah, I mean, they're going in and out of the White House, presumably, and oh, yeah. in and out of the uh, Naval Observatory. And taking expensive gifts and accepting $40,000 in free rent at a luxury apartment in Washington and drinking beers and exchanging stories. Something's up here. We don't know all the facts of this case. But like I say, this is exactly what they taught us to do at the CIA Maybe it's when just... recruiting somebody. Maybe it's just uh, two, two men who had big crushes on Jill Biden and Kamala Harris. Or <laughs> big two, crushes two, on... They're, they're high school sweethearts. Yeah, just trying is. for, you know, one last shot. Michelle, there's an ongoing terrorism trial uh, in the federal uh, court in Alexandria, Virginia, the Eastern District of Virginia. A guy by the name of Ashafi Sheikh, or in the paper it says El Shafi El Sheikh. I won't get into the pronunciation thing. Um, is accused of kidnapping and murdering four Americans, including journalists James Foley and Steve Sokoloff. I'm sorry, Sotloff, and uh, aid workers Peter Kassig and Kayla Muller. Muller was raped hundreds of times before she was killed, and all four were beheaded. Um, Sheikh is a British citizen of Sudanese descent and one of three that the hostages called the Beatles because they spoke with British accents. 
They were standouts among ISIS for their cruelty. Like, even by ISIS standards, these guys were unusually cruel. They starved and beat the hostages for months, in some cases for years, before beheading them. And Sheikh is also accused of killing another two Japanese aid workers and two British aid workers. Um, He's one of two that were arrested uh, of the three. One was killed in a bombing. Uh, The other two were arrested as ISIS fell trying to blend in with a group of refugees in Turkey, Uh, both extradited now to Alexandria, Virginia. They face life without parole in a supermax prison. So that trial began yesterday. We're going to continue watching it. And the southern Ukrainian city of Mariupol is on the brink of falling to the Russian military. Tens of thousands of civilians are feared dead there in fighting over the last couple of days. And Russian authorities say they've taken more than 1,000 prisoners of war. Now, the interesting thing is that a lot of those POWs appear to be foreign nationals, generally um, British Canadians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, and maybe a handful of Poles. Uh, Now, among these nationals, well, they're all NATO countries. UK, Canada, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland, they're all NATO countries. Now, they they would have been private citizens going there on their own, but still, you know, this this could be something of a problem. And you also wonder, and I I will hope, I hope we can get into this later this week. But, you know, this this was a, a very big battle, right? How much yeah, it seems like one. it is now a matter of time before uh, Russia is in control of Mariupol. So what does that do in terms of negotiations for peace? Uh, what does that do in question. terms of? Yeah. The, like how, how long how long are other Ukrainian cities uh, going to fight, expected to fight? You know, I, I have a question for one of our guests later, but I might as well just raise it in this context uh, right now, peace talks are done. They're canceled. They're, they're ended. There are no peace talks, right? They tried for a few days in Istanbul. It didn't work on 60 minutes. uh, President Zelensky said that while he can never accept um, a permanent Russian occupation of Crimea and the Donbass, this may be a fact of life that the Ukrainians are going to have to live with. That's probably a healthy attitude. But then at the same time, we're not even going to get to a point of negotiations again until somebody's bleeding heavily. You know, this this is what happened, for example, during the Vietnam War. The fiercest, most intense fighting came just at the start of peace talks Mm -hmm. because you want to enter into peace talks from a position of strength. And so I fear that that's what's going to happen here is we're going to see. Uh, we're going to enter an intense part of this war and then go into peace talks. But a lot of people are going to die before we get there. Pretty sad prediction there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that makes that makes sense to me as much as anything else in this war has made sense. Uh, we have some covid news. It looks like the Biden administration is going to extend for another two weeks. Yeah. The nationwide uh, mask mandate for public transportation. So that means masks on planes. I think that means I haven't taken a train, but I assume that means masks on Amtrak, masks on city public transportation. Uh, It was going to expire April 18th. They are stretching it out a little further. As we mentioned, cases cases have been ticking up in a lot of parts uh, of the United States, including in Washington, D.C., but deaths and hospitalizations, not so much. And actually, the World Health Organization yesterday 
They said COVID-19 remains a global public health emergency, but we have recorded now the the fewest deaths since the earliest days of the pandemic. So it was 220 or sorry, 22,000 deaths from COVID during the week ending April 10th. That was the lowest level since March 30th, 2020. Uh, So that seems to be seems to be good news. Yeah. As long as it is reliable. Right. And I do think there's some concern that the you know, the vaccines have made this for quite a lot of people an illness that is not particularly significant. You also have uh, ever more ubiquitous home testing options. Yes. And so you have a lot of people who are perhaps testing at home, perhaps not re- uh, sending information to the CDC, reporting it the way that you are supposed to report it. And so, you know, I, th- I think the reliability might start to tick down on some of these numbers. They still text me all the time, the CDC. How are you feeling today? Really? We haven't heard from you in six months. What? Yeah, I just, just day before yesterday. You? Nobody texts me from the CDC. Ever since I got my first vaccine, they've been texting me. What? And in the beginning, they were texting like every single day. How do you feel? Do you have a fever? Do you have chills? Do you have this? Do you have that? And then it tapered off. Now it's every six months. That's so unfair. <laughs> yeah, was, let me say another thing, too, about that. You know, I take the subway to work every day ever since two lowlifes stole my Vespa, which thanks to the, the disruption in the supply chain, it's been six months and I can't get parts yet. Anyway, so I take the subway and usually there's nobody on the subway, even in rush hour. Mm-hmm. I just get on. I sit down. I take my whatever it is, four stops, and then I get off. Today, there were so many people that it was like the worst rush hour day and the worst hour of the rush hour. I had to squeeze myself onto the train. It was full of young people, young like high schoolers. And I'm going to say of the hundreds of people who were packed onto that car, Fewer than a dozen of us had masks on. No. And, you know, it's still a federal mandate, a regulation. You I have to bus. wear. Yeah, you have everybody's to wear a mask. Wearing, everybody's wearing a mask on the bus and the buses have been, you know, the buses have been reasonably crowded. That's a pretty sad statement I'll on say. Metro that it's empty at rush hour. I've been. Oh, yeah. I love public transportation, but I think Metro is is garbage. It's, it's really expensive. expensive. The hours are really inconvenient. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go anywhere. The trains don't run very often. Like it's it's awful. You know, like you go to a ball game and um, and it's tied and it goes into extra innings. Right. And then Metro's like, yeah, uh, we're not staying open. So uh, good luck getting home. No, it's and a they really just shut down. It's a it's a pretty garbage system. Uh, the buses have been OK, though. Yeah, The buses are good. But I mean, if you don't have any if you don't have any riders, it's hard to. Uh, I mean, what are you going to do? Start charging fifty dollars a trip to Seriously. like the 10 people who can still like, use Metro to get it's anywhere. Outrageous. I can't wait to get my Vespa back. Godspeed, John. All right, we're going to take <laughs> a break you. here before we start just griping about our personal lives too much. We're going to pull it together for the next segment. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The situation in Ukraine continues to remain fluid. The Russian military appears to be focused now on Donetsk, Luhansk, and the Crimea. 
Fighting in the South is particularly intense. And President Biden yesterday said that President Putin was committing genocide in Ukraine, something that was echoed by several members of the United Nations. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian government announced that it had arrested Viktor Medvedchuk, a pro-Russian Ukrainian oligarch and former government official whose daughter is Putin's goddaughter, which I thought was interesting. Medvedchuk was snatched in a special forces operation, and within hours, President Zelensky offered to exchange him for Ukrainian troops captured by the Russians. Slovakia's prime minister said yesterday that his country was willing to donate MiG-29 fighter jets to Ukraine, an announcement that met with no pushback at all from the United States. Slovakia already has sent Ukraine an S-300 anti-aircraft system, and then it was replaced by a Patriot anti-aircraft system uh, donated by the United States. We're joined by KJ No. KJ is a scholar, an educator, and journalist focused on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region, and he's a member of Veterans for Peace. Welcome back, KJ. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So happy to have you, KJ. Let's begin with uh, Ukraine. President Biden used the word genocide yesterday, and there there has been some domestic political pressure uh, on him to use that word. That's a marked uptick in rhetoric, but it's unclear if it actually means anything in terms of a policy change. Do you think that it does? Why would the president use that word? Well, the word genocide is a trigger word, uh, and it's often a word that the uh, U.S. uses when it has no proof, but it wants uh, the audience to stop their critical faculties, stop thinking, mm-hmm. and simply be ira- uh, enraged and, you know, in awe of the fact of the situation. The fact is that uh, you know, in theology, there's something called Pascal's wager, where the bet or the risk is so high that you better believe it in the case of Pascal himself, eternal damnation. But, uh, you know, the genocide term was most recently used regarding Xinjiang, and it was completely inappropriate, completely wrong. Even the State Department's own lawyers disagreed with it. You know, Xinjiang, its uh, population has doubled. The Uyghur population has doubled in the last 40 years. Oh, my gosh. Exempt from the one-child policy. They were growing at twice the national average. But the U.S. used it anyway as a way of demonizing and generating mass, you know, uh, vilification and hatred against China. I think it's the same thing that is happening here. Now, technically, when you use the term genocide, it does trigger certain uh, legal provisions. But I don't think Biden is using it in that sense. I don't see those triggers uh, starting to happen. And so I think it's pure rhetoric. And it simply is indicating that, you know, the U.S. is out of moral ammunition and now has to resort to a kind of histrionic uh, obfuscation of the facts. Uh, Just one more fact is that, you know, these uh, terms started to come out after, quote unquote, the massacre of uh, Bucha, um, you know, uh, a little while ago. And I remind people that the Russians left Bucha on March 30th. Bucha is 10 square miles. You could walk every street in less than a day. The uh, Ukrainian army did a, uh, or the SBU did a complete cleanup operation. And for days, they reported no bodies. And then uh, on the third, they started to discover and report bodies found. So I think people can draw their own conclusions from that. You know, I'll add something to that, too. Uh, Bruce Fine is a frequent uh, guest on the show. 
and uh, and a good friend of mine and one of the country's leading constitutional uh, scholars. Now, he's been accused of being an Armenian Holocaust denier, and he's not an Armenian Holocaust denier. In a speech at Harvard University several years ago, he said that um, I shouldn't have used the word Holocaust. I should have said Armenian genocide. He used the the word um, uh, massacre, and he said that that the word genocide has a very specific legal meaning. And as you just said correctly, uh, KJ, uh, when when you use the term genocide, it's supposed to trigger uh, a, a legal case against the, the person or the government or the entity that, that has carried out this genocide. But there's a very specific definition of it. And most of these situations, while terrible, don't meet the legal definition of a genocide. And so, you know, rather than throw the word out there to inflame people and enrage them, perhaps we should let the lawyers do their jobs and let the lawyers handle it. You can call it a massacre. You can call it whatever you want. It's not a genocide. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, that's the other piece around genocide. It's not for an individual or a political party or, you know, the media to find for genocide. It has very specific meanings under law, and you have to have a, con- uh, a competent tribunal make that determination. And without that, you actually have nothing. The simple fact is that, you know, if we were to use the generic term of genocide, which means many people killed, many people dead. We would have to assert that Korea, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, Indonesia, Latin America, Congo, DRC, Batwa. Exactly. I think the Batwa right now, all of those would have to be considered genocides. You are absolutely right. Let me ask you also about this Victor Victor, uh, Medvedchuk. I I don't know how to correctly say his name, and I apologize for that. Is is his capture a big deal? The, The media seem to think that it is today. Well, I mean, my first question is, was he actually captured? Because I think he was under house arrest. Right. He was under house arrest. So are we supposed to assume that he just disappeared and then they had to send this special forces team to go find him and scoop him up? So isn't isn't he the president of the I think it's called an opposition for life party, which was the the largest opposition party in Ukraine. And I think was outlawed two weeks ago. Uh It was outlawed at some point. Uh, after the invasion. And so, you know, that that maybe I think if you're if your political party is outlawed and you're accused of collaborating with the enemy, perhaps you had gone into hiding. Well, you know, the question I would have there and all of this, you know, triggers my, um, you know, all of my, uh, you know, instincts. But uh, if he if he disappeared or escaped, why wasn't that reported? Great point. Uh, And secondly, um, you know, the thing is that even though he had all of these allegations made against him, there was no trial. I don't recall seeing any reports from a trial. Uh, This is my guess. And of course, you know, I don't know the facts, but this would be my assumption uh, is that um, uh, they were holding him the whole time. And now he's been rediscovered, uh, found uh, wearing military fatigues, and therefore he is, quote unquote, you know, a prisoner of war and therefore not subject to, you know, the same standards that you would expect of uh, an opposition party politician. You know, now he's just uh, 
something or somebody who can be used in a prison exchange. Now, the other piece I think which is important to understand is that there is a very, very seasoned journalist called uh, Georges Malbruno, uh, who, who writes for the Figaro, and he has come back uh, recently saying that the U.S. Uh, has been uh, directly involved uh, in, uh, in the fighting in, um, in uh, uh, Mariupol and, um, and that there are high, uh, uh, so, you know, he says the Americans are directly in charge of the war on the ground. I thought I was getting involved with the international brigades of the Spanish Civil War. Instead, I found myself face to face with the Pentagon. Now, what we see now is that there have been mass surrenders at Mariupol. I'm wondering if there are SAS or, you know, uh, special forces officers who have been uh, arrested, detained. And I'm wondering if that is a part of this, uh, you know, part of the impetus uh, for, you know, suggesting a prison exchange. I don't have facts on the ground, but I'm just, you know, trying to draw connections between two interesting uh, phenomena. Mm-hmm as well as the fact that I, I seriously doubt that, you know, he was, that he is a, a legitimate prisoner of war. Those are very important uh, questions. And it certainly wouldn't be unusual to have Americans on the ground there. Uh, you know, the Americans used to complain all the time that, that, that their satellite imagery in, uh, in Vietnam during the Vietnam War showed uh, in in North Vietnamese camps, people squatting rather than sitting cross-legged, uh, with the analytic conclusion being that Russians squat and Vietnamese sit cross-legged. What? So there must be Russian military advisors in Vietnam, right? Had none of these people ever been to Southeast Asia? <laughs> Sorry. I just like, that's where I learned to squat. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were Americans in Mariupol. Uh, the question that I would have for our own government is, are these uh, Pentagon people or are they Blackwater people? I'd like to know. Uh, let me ask you another question, too. I, I referred to this in the in the monologue at the start of the show, KJ. President Putin said yesterday that the peace process was dead and that there would be no further meetings between the two sides in Istanbul. The Turks had been uh, sponsoring these these meetings. He also said that Russia would focus on securing uh, the ethnic Russian areas in Ukraine's east. So do you think that peace really is dead? Is there any hope at all for a negotiated settlement, at least in the near term? You know, I think we should all hold out for the hope of peace. Uh, I think that whatever the case is, uh, I don't think we should give up on that. And, you know, there are many organizations that are struggling and fighting for this. But uh, the simple fact is that the U.S. doesn't look like it wants peace. It wants a long war of, uh, you know, something uh, trap for the Russians. The EU and NATO don't seem to want peace to the extent that, you know, they're even speaking their own minds. Uh, Zelensky doesn't seem to signal any you know, meaningful uh, desire to come to the table and make uh, concessions or negotiations. And so we're grinding down into a war of attrition. Uh, and under that circumstance, I believe simply for 
logistical reasons that Russia has the upper hand. And so, yes, uh, I think that the prospects of peace are, have been diminished, uh, hopefully, you know, wiser and, uh, you know, better minds uh, will continue to negotiate and come back to the table. But for now, you know, it looks like that candle is, is you know, quivering in the wind. I, I have to agree with that. Tell us a little bit about this transfer of MiG-29 fighter jets and self-propelled howitzers from Slovakia to Ukraine. What do you think that will mean? I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that there was zero pushback from the United States when the Slovaks came out and said that they have these these MiGs. They don't need them because they're trying to fully transition to um, to U.S. Uh, weaponry. And so they're going to send them to Ukraine. This seems like a big deal. But if it's you know, if we're talking about two two fighter jets, then I guess it's not a big deal. What are you thinking? Yeah, I think this is largely symbolic. Mm. Uh, it they serve uh, the function of prolonging the war to some extent without and and enraging, you know, uh, Russia without necessarily creating any material difference. But I think they also relate to the upgrade that Slovakia is trying to do. That is, uh, if it replaces its own uh, forces and materiel with U.S. standard stuff, then we're looking at greater interoperability with NATO and, you know, NATO maneuvers. So I think it's all of those different factors. But yes, to answer your question, I don't think it will make a material difference. I want to uh, shift to Asia too, if I could, KJ. And I want to ask you about Huawei and this uh, recent announcement from Huawei. Uh, Huawei put part of its Russian workforce on vacation for a month after earlier suspending all orders in the country. That was according to Forbes Russia. Uh, why why do this? Is it to not attract more trouble for itself in the in the West in terms of secondary sanctions? And do you think that this move is is permanent, semi permanent? You know, I would guess that it's um, uh, that it's a temporary measure. I think they're just testing, um, you know, the, the waters, you know, seeing which way the wind is blowing. Now, the thing to remember about Huawei is that it is the most advanced uh, telecoms communication uh, company in the world. They own at least one fifth of all base patents. This is because they, you know, invest $20 billion in research. Yes. So they're kind of extraordinary uh, company, but uh, they're also a worker-owned collective. Uh, just recently, they distributed billions of dollars of profits right back to staff. Remember, um, you know, uh, not so long ago, they faced complete and total annihilation. Uh, that is to say, uh, they faced probably the most stringent sanctions that any company uh, on the planet has ever faced, uh, you know, hardware, software, uh, chips, uh, operating systems, and they had to sell off a large part of their business just to survive. And then the second threat that they faced was the kidnapping of their CSO. Yes you know, who was held illegally uh, in, uh, in Canada for several years, a mother of young children held on purely spurious grounds. And now they've crawled back. You know, they're starting to build themselves back up. They've had, you know, a kind of a, a good year. 
Uh, and uh, one thing to remember is Huawei is all over the world. They're a huge, huge corporation. Uh, Russia is actually a fairly uh, small market. So I think they're trying to avoid secondary sanctions or worse than that, they may be trying to avoid kidnappings and other medieval tactics that they've been subjected to. But uh, on the other hand, you know, they are a company of good conscience. They believe in, you know, honoring their contracts. So I think that this is a temporary respite to test the waters, you know, see what their options are, perhaps check in with their own uh, legal uh, staff. And then I think we may see uh, a resumption of service in one form or another. And tell us a little bit, if you could, about the the present state of relations between the U.S. and China. There was a complaint that the U.S. government had, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, that the Chinese government had last week about um, U.S. naval vessels passing through the, the South China Sea. Uh, this is kind of a normal thing. We complain about them. They complain about us. It's always about the South China Sea or or man-made islands that the Chinese have constructed there. How are things going now? in terms of direct relations between the two, but in light of what's happening in Ukraine. The Chinese seem to be in in as um, uh, tenuous a position as the United States is. Um, uh, I, I, would, I would agree and disagree. I don't know if tenuous is quite the, the right word, but certainly, uh, you know, we are seeing strong disagreements between China uh, and the United States. Uh, China is not uh, likely to subordinate its foreign policy to U.S., uh, you know, uh, U.S., uh, you know, designs, and certainly not given all the hostility that it's faced. Most recently, Nancy Pelosi, you know, had threatened to uh, go to Taiwan. And right. that would have been a salami slicing of every red line uh, that the Chinese have put forth. Now, uh, Pelosi, you know, luckily she seems to have uh, miraculously caught COVID and that gave her a good excuse not to go to Taiwan. But the Chinese had threatened to create a no-fly zone over Taiwan and to shoot down, uh, you know, uh, Taiwanese, uh, you know, anti-aircraft. Uh, batteries. So I think that gives you a sense of how serious this is. You know, this is a very, very serious escalation. It looks like from the Chinese standpoint that the U.S. is trying to, you know, create uh, havoc uh, on both sides of the Eurasian continent. And their, you know, their response, you know, is very, very firm. They're saying you can't do this. Uh, and we are willing, uh, you know, to uh, challenge you as far as it goes. You know, certainly uh, they're not threatening direct kinetic war. The actions that they are suggesting could lead to kinetic war, either by accident or by right. uh, moving, inching up the escalation ladder. KJ, lastly, I'd like to talk for a few minutes about U.S.-Saudi relations. A group of House Democrats are planning to send a letter to Secretary of State Tony Blinken this week complaining about President Biden's handling of relations with Saudi Arabia. A source on Capitol Hill says the letter will contain a litany of grievances about Saudi Arabia ranging from the murder of Jamal Khashoggi to the recent rise in oil prices to human rights and the Yemen war. 
The CIA, meanwhile, apparently has completed a national intelligence estimate, an NIE, on Saudi Arabia, although we don't have any idea what it says. Uh, And the State Department Human Rights Report for Saudi Arabia, which was published yesterday, was the harshest in memory. Um, I want to ask you where you see relations uh, headed between the United States and Saudi Arabia, but I'd like to read, I'm going to try to keep this short. This is from the State Department Human Rights Report for Saudi Arabia. It says significant human rights issues included credible reports of, and I won't read the whole thing. It's just too long. Executions for nonviolent offenses, forced disappearances, torture and cases of cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment of prisoners and detainees by government agents, harsh and life-threatening prison conditions, arbitrary arrest and detention, political prisoners or detainees, harassment and intimidation against Saudi dissidents living abroad, arbitrary or unlawful interference with privacy, collective punishment of family members for offenses allegedly committed by an individual, serious abuses, blah, 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 blah. It goes on for another 20 lines. And that's just the executive summary. That's just the first paragraph of the executive summary. So it looks like there's, you know, some meat behind what these Democrats on Capitol Hill are writing to Tony Blinken to complain about. Do you see this administration challenging, taking on the Saudi government? Or are we going to go back to this weapons for oil relationship where we smile and shake hands and pretend everything's okay? Well, I think the salvo has been fired, and that's to put the Saudis on notice that they are, you know, in the doghouse with the United States right now. Uh, you know, these, uh, this report, horrific, horrific as it sounds, you know, is if it's the harshest in memory, my question to you is, you know, where was your memory? Where was your awareness in the last years and decades? This, none of this is new. So why is, right. what is new? Why is this suddenly coming up? Uh, you know, on the screen. Well, I mean, of course, it has to do with the fact that Saudi Arabia is not going along with U.S. demanded sanctions on Russia, and that it's also continuing to transition towards the petro-yuan. Remember, the petro-yuan is the basis of the the U.S.'s exorbitant privilege. It's the reason why the dollar you know, is the, uh, you know, uh, international standard currency, reserve currency. And so uh, all of this is to simply to point out that the U.S. doesn't care about human rights. And when it brings up human rights as an issue, this is clearly and obviously a political maneuvering. Does it mean that things are completely going to go down the sink? Or does it mean that, you know, that Saudi Arabia is not yet... Uh, you know, can be, you know, uh, coerced back into the U.S. line. Uh, that remains to be seen. And it will also have to do with how the Saudis respond to waste treat. Indeed. That, yes. At the current moment, we see the same thing happening with India. <clears throat> India is also being charged of human rights violations. And yes. So, yes. And it also relates to the fact that India has refused to break relations and sanction Russia. That is the bottom line right there. Yeah, we had no problems with the Indians until just the last couple of weeks. We're going to leave it there. That was the voice of K.J. No. He is a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on political economy and the geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region, and he's a member of Veterans for Peace. 
You're listening to Political Misfits. We'll take a short break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we've got, it's a local and a global environmental issue to talk about today, but I have a feeling both of them are going to point back to larger larger networks and larger systems that, uh, that you know, drive both, right? So maybe the local is not quite as local as we think. We will let our guests uh, help us sort all this out. We're talking to Guy McPherson. He's a scientist and professor emeritus of natural resources and ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona. Guy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, John. And looking forward to our conversation today. Welcome. I want to get into the, uh, the, the local and specific one first. Uh, and what sparked my interest is this really sad story uh, in the Washington Post of a couple who bought a small farm in Maine. They built a small business on what they grew there. And only years after purchasing the farm and g- growing a bunch of products on it and, and turning them into an organic product line that it was selling, uh, did they learn that their soil and water were contaminated with perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances, which are also known as PFAs or called forever chemicals because of how long they linger in our environment. And so the story details how this couple tested their soil, their water and their own bodies and found very elevated PFA levels everywhere. Uh, They discovered that this problem seems to have started in the 1990s when their farm, but also others across the state, were fertilized with treated industrial sewage that contained an unknown amount of PFAs. And to add another layer here, you know, they they bought the farm from a previous farmer who had had that fertilizer applied and continued growing products with it, probably continuing to just spread these PFAs further. And so, you know, this is our jumping off point. But but I wanted to ask you to tell us what we know about these chemicals uh, and how they came to be apparently so prevalent in our environments. We started spreading humanure in their four PFAs, to my knowledge, in the early 1980s when I was in graduate school. Sorry, humanure, you mean human waste? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And, you know, we've been spreading manure from cattle for at least hundreds of years with no serious negative impacts. And so spreading human waste instead probably didn't seem like such a terrible idea at the time. As it turns out, it was a terrible idea. And now we know better and we're still spreading this nasty stuff out there for as nearly as I can tell one reason. There's money in it. And money for who? (laughs) Money primarily for the chemical companies. Okay. Let's start. Let's let's go back to April 6th, 1938, if you don't mind. Roy Plunkett, who at the time was a 27-year-old research chemist who worked at DuPont's Jackson Laboratory in Deepwater, New Jersey, and he discovered accidentally the first compound that we now throw into this category of 
very dangerous and long-lived compounds. Uh, it was marketed starting in 1945 as Teflon. And as one result, Plunkett was named to the National Inventors Hall of Fame for the invention of Teflon, which he discovered accidentally. And now we know that Teflon is horrible, along with a whole bunch of other compounds that we accidentally applied or accidentally discovered or somehow they came to be widely used. And I suspect the primary reason they continue to be widely used is because there's money in it for at least the companies like DuPont, who are still continuing to claim that these PFAs really don't have any negative effects. They claim that. Can you tell us, I mean, one, I, I think we will eventually get to that the PFAs is a very big category of compounds. And so this is an excuse that has been given by some of the industry organizations that are blocking regulation. They're saying, oh, it's not fair to categorize all of these as dangerous. You know, there are many different ones. We need to be more specific. But I wonder if you could tell us, you know, tell us about some of the ways they are dangerous and why they should be restricted. Sure. Well, first, from the Washington Post story you sent me from a couple of days ago, the American Chemistry Council, the trade or association that represents U.S. chemical manufacturers, said in a statement that companies use PFAs only, quote, to achieve specific desired technical and functional effects and says they're vital to U.S. priorities relative to the climate, sustainability, defense, and domestic supply chain resiliency. So it makes it sound like it's all good, that we absolutely need these things to survive. But the results of animal studies, these reported by the CDC, indicate otherwise. There are four categories of effects that are now widely recognized, including by the CDC. Hepatic effects, which mostly focus on the liver, so we're talking about liver damage. Immune system effects, reproductive effects, so that there's reduced fertility and reduced survival rate, and developmental effects, uh, particularly decreases in body weight, survival of young individuals, and alterations in locomotor activity. So these things have been around for a long time. We've known about their negative effects for a long time. And we have organizations like the American Chemistry Council continuing to proclaim that it's all good. And, you know, that's that's the story, basically, of civilization. Every new convenience is met with glee. The costs are not even discussed until people start dying. Fertilizers, pesticides, solar panels, cell phones, the list goes on and on. And it's basically the same story, just retold over and over again in ways that make it seem obvious that there were negative effects, but only in retrospect, only after things, these things had been implemented and used to the point that they are taken advantage. Consider, for example, smartphones. I mean, the, the EPA, in trying to categorize and regulate these substances, would be up against DuPont, up against uh, the American chemical industry and other industry groups that want to keep making money on these chemicals. But, you know, this story, like, as you say, Teflon is nearly 100 years old. Uh, this Washington Post story says the EPA has known about the dangers of PFAs for at least 20 years. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, there, are, of course, are always going to be industry hurdles to regulation. But do you think the EPA has been, uh, I guess, egregiously slow in regulating PFAs? And if it has been, then why? Well, absolutely they have. The, the 
Environmental Protection Agency falls under the heading of executive privilege or executive administration. It's, it is regulated and reports to the president, in other words, the presidential administration. And I don't know if you noticed, but no matter who the president is, there are all kinds of things that happen under presidential administrations that are a lot better for people with a lot of money than they are for the masses in this country and elsewhere. A June 20th, 2018 ProPublica article indicated that the CDC report recommends an exposure limit for various of these PFA compounds that are 10 times lower than the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's current limit. And so there's this back and forth between the CDC, influenced by people with money, the Environmental Protection Agency, influenced by people with money, the presidential administration, no matter who the president is, who's influenced by people with a lot of money, and so on. It seems to me it points to people who have a lot of money exerting considerable influence over public policy in this country and beyond. It is just sort of it's I mean, I know the answer will be the same. It always is. But it is interesting when you are talking about, again, a chemical that's nicknamed or a compound that's nicknamed forever chemicals, because it's not as though you can just move away from the river you're dumping your sewage in. Right. This is the kind of thing where it, it does seem like it will definitely get back to you or get back to your kids. And that, I, you know, I, I don't think you're going to tell me that the reasons for that are any different than, you know, the whatever making money in the short term is always what seems to drive these people. But it's surprising to me that, that we're still so profligate with these chemicals, even though we know they last a really long time. You know, human animals, like other animals, are primarily focused on immediate survival, the, the flight or flight, fight or flight response is still evident in humans as it is with non-human animals. And once we get beyond that flight or fight and we feel fairly comfortable, we start reproducing because that's what has always worked for every species to occupy the planet so far. It's no surprise that that's what we do. And so to downplay the negative effects of PFAs and many other compounds and many other activities is no particular surprise. We're flight or fight organisms. That that's that's how we came to being on this planet. That's what allows us to survive and continue our important status on this planet. I don't see us changing that anytime soon. We apparently don't have the long-term thinking that characterizes societies that persist a long time. I also wanted to take a minute and talk about the implications of the U.N. climate change report that came out last month. And in particular, the unequal way the effects of climate change are going to fall upon the earth, at, at least at first. And, and the thing that jumped out to my eye uh, was water stress on the African continent. The report predicted that by 2030, 250 million people in Africa would be under high water stress largely due to climate change, and 700 million could be displaced as a result. It's again by 2030. And this is half the continent's population and on a continent that has produced less than 4% of the global emissions that are driving this problem. And I just felt like, of course, you know, we talk about climate inequality. Uh, we talk about sort of uh, racial inequality when it comes to the effects of climate change. But these figures 
really drove home, I think, how uh, I, I would say criminal it is for Western industrialized countries to be so stingy when it comes to funding the countries we've already historically exploited just to manage this climate change. And, you know, we are making other people pay very dearly for our consumer appetites and for the economy that we structured. And so I, I don't I don't have a question necessarily, Guy. I just wanted to ask what these figures uh, say to you and, and what you think would be a, a true moral response from the West. Well, they say to me the same thing we've been doing from this country, from our position of global power for at least my entire life and probably for the last couple of hundred years. We're in a position of power. We, we tuck ourselves into bed at night, comfortable that somebody else, most notably the commander in chief, sometimes known as the president of this country, is going to protect us. And that protection comes in various forms. It comes in the form of ensuring that we have oil, the most important fluid ever discovered in the history of homo sapiens on Earth. And that comes at a cost. You know, the United States peaked in 1970. It was clear in 1972 that the United States was no longer the world's swing supplier. And shortly thereafter, OPEC was formed to make sure that the power kept, at least to a certain extent, kept with the countries that held the oil. The United States administrative response was the Carter Doctrine. Jimmy Carter, the, the friendly guy that everybody says they love, the Carter Doctrine says that that's our oil over there, and by extension, that's our everything out there, no matter where it's found. And our response has been to claim national defense, but really it's been quite offensive. And it leads to us ensuring that we have access to the fossil fuels. All that aside, I strongly suspect, and I'm not happy to say this, that we need not worry about what happens in 2030. I don't think there will be a human being on the planet. After all, Burke and colleagues reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on December 25th, 2018, sorry, December 26th, that the best analog for the future is the Pliocene. They used the IPCC's representative concentration pathways in concluding we're headed for the Pliocene as early as 2030. The representative concentration pathways ignored dozens of self-reinforcing feedback loops and the aerosol masking effect, and yet the mid-Pliocene was at least 2C warmer than the planet is today. So this stunningly rapid rate of environmental change indicates to me that vertebrate mammals and vertebrates and mammals are already hovering on the brain and, and losing habitat throughout the world probably won't be around. The, the vertebrate mammals known as humans probably won't be around in 2030. So that promise, which seems like it's being made for the relatively short term or the consequences are going to appear for the relatively short term. But, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people in positions of political power know what I know. And I'm pretty sure there won't be a human on the planet because we'll run out of habitat long before then. Can you, we've only got a minute left. And so I wanted you to ask you to, in a minute, to sort of describe this new Pliocene. What's going to happen first? Well, we are already losing habitat for vertebrates and mammals around the world. The projections are that we're going to outstrip our habitat very soon, depending upon what kinds of changes are made. Collapse of ocean ecosystems is projected to occur during this decade, the decade of the 2020s. We depend upon the ocean for many, many factors that 
allow us to survive. We're losing habitat. People are, are dying literally by the millions as a result of non-optimal temperatures. This according to peer-reviewed literature already. It hasn't affected very many people in the United States yet, unless you live in Alaska or in southern Florida, where saltwater intrusion is negatively affecting the water supply. But it's happening many places around the world. Habitat is being lost for human animals. And to think that we will escape that in the relatively near term seems like classic human hubris to me. We'll have to end it there. That was scientist Guy McPherson. Guy, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate it. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, taking a look at British politics for a minute, including uh, healthcare politics. And also, this is my theory, uh, I think how efforts to enforce universal support for what we like to call the rules-based international order yep. uh, have been really ripping apart the left, uh, yes. starting a couple years ago with the purge of supposed anti-Semites from the Labor Party, and now perhaps re-emerging in uh, efforts to ensure that no one criticizes NATO. Yes, from the, no from criticism the at all. Yep. Joining us to get into these and more topics is Mohamed Elmazi. He's a UK-based freelance journalist and a contributor to a number of different outlets. Mohamed, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for inviting me. So let's talk about British politics here. Uh, yesterday, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as well as Chancellor Rishi Sunak, were fined for breaking their own government's lockdown rules. And as we mentioned yesterday, there was a time when Partygate, you know, Boris Johnson appearing maskless at quote unquote work functions that seemed to be uh, not essential, we'll say, uh, was perhaps going to bring down his uh, bring down. I don't know about his government, but certainly bring him down. Now, uh, it just kind of seems like it might it might float past. There are stories about a couple of conservative members of parliament, you know, voicing some uh, concern with the situation. Uh, but I, I want to ask Mohammed how much you think how likely you think it is that this uh, acknowledgement of breaking the law is going to affect Boris Johnson in any way? And also how much the war in Ukraine has really helped salvage Boris Johnson's political future? Uh, I would say that the war in Ukraine has played a substantial role in sort of distracting from uh, any of the types of critiques or criticisms or pressure that would normally be placed um whether it's on Boris Johnson or whether it's on uh, people like Keir Starmer, leader of the main opposition Labour Party. Uh, it also um, makes it easier for those individuals to say that, you know, this is a state of emergency now, a time of emergency, and to therefore people have to uh, accept a sort of a circling of the wagons and sort of unite behind a common message. So I would definitely say that uh, um, the way things were looking before that without the war and without this massive cost of living crisis that we're experiencing in the UK, which began last year, it actually began before Russia's invasion. So, you know, it's, it's down to like a, a number of things, especially uh, uh, 
this market dependent energy market, right? It's no, we don't have like nationalized or publicly owned energy supplies. Uh, the fact that uh, China started to massively increase last year its consumption of gas, the fact that Britain doesn't store gas. And what's happened is the invasion and uh, and the knock-on on, on wheat and food has just made matters much worse. But we were already looking at spiraling costs, like about $1,000 US dollars worth of increases for energy costs alone. So I don't know, maybe you're experiencing something like that in the United States. Yes. But that is quite substantial. So it's not like wages are going to cover that. They're not increasing. It's just, and that's just energy costs. That doesn't include... Um, you know, rising food costs as well as a result of rising energy and other costs. So uh, of the cost of food going up, the cost of like heating your home, of cooking your food going up. Um, and it's um, the best we can expect from regulators is to issue reports in this country because it's all soft touch, light touch regulation. Before we get to labor, can you talk to us since uh, energy's come up? Can you talk to us about how Boris Johnson proposes the UK handle this energy crisis? I, I saw that they're going to start they want to produce more from the North Sea. Uh, they may refocus on nuclear energy. What kind of plan has this government put forth? Well, the UK has like 13 nuclear reactors. So they've talked about opening up eight more nuclear reactors. There's discussion about have opening up, uh, approving a new nuclear reactor every year until the end of the decade. Uh, but, you know, it'll take about 20 years from the design to the actual construction if everything goes as planned. So um, building 13 new nuclear reactors by the year 2050, uh, or eight, sorry, new new nuclear reactors by the year 2050, I'm not sure is an answer. I mean, that's setting aside the highly destructive nature of what nuclear uh, reactors represent, the fact that uh, this is, is this really going to help to make the UK energy independent? I mean, we do have to import visible material, right? We don't have major uranium mines in this country. So you're still dependent on importing it. They're not exactly weatherproof. Look at what happened in Japan, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so that is these are not short term answers. I mean, literally nothing to do with nuclear is going to change people's uh, energy supplier costs of, of, of living today, tomorrow or anytime soon thereafter. They are talking about making it easier to build offshore wind farms. And, you know, nuclear power represents about 16 percent of the total UK electrical grid of the supply of energy but 20 to 25% from wind farms. Hmm. So, and wind farms aren't, uh, you know, ticking time bombs, which could explode and irradiate a place for 100,000 years. <laughs> so it does seem odd. The other thing on the list is they, they were going to make it easier to build them domestically as well, but there's a lot of NIMBY stuff going in, not in my backyard. Lots of conservative towns, they don't like the uh, uh, the wind farms. Uh, and what else? Increased gas and oil exploitation from the North Sea oil. We get very little gas or oil from Russia, like 1% or something. Most of it comes from Norway, the North Sea oil, or shipped from the Gulf states. I can't recall, maybe John knows better, but Bahrain and Qatar, I think, are the UK's main sources. Uh, Qatar uh, for gas and uh, the United Arab Emirates for, for oil. Yeah, for gas, I was thinking specifically because we use gas. We're a major gas. We use gas to like heat right loads of stuff here. But we can't. We apparently only store about one percent of 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 stored gas in Europe is in the UK. So that means we don't have much storage capacity, despite the huge amount of natural gas that is used. So, and I think they're going to try to, although they haven't said this in Boris Johnson's plans, but they were they were putting it out there that they should come back to the fracking. 
right? Because there has been a fracking moratorium as a result of years of sustained activism and campaign against uh, a government imp imposed fracking. So that uh, uh, program uh, and that collapsed. I, I'm very impressed that that they succeeded there. I mean, imagine if Dakota Access Pipeline ultimately failed because of the protests like that is that kind of thing. Um, but of course, now some people are saying, hey, let's do that, even though it would take 10 to 10 years at least to pay off. Um, and lots of the stuff is about exporting anyway. That's the other thing that's not discussed, you know, these these uh, for fracking. It does seem like on both sides of the pond right now, after people have been clamoring for long term, long term climate solutions, long term thinking when it comes to to climate and, uh, you know, even economic reform. Uh, that seemed to be impossible. But now at a time when people are acutely suffering, right, suffering from high inflation in the United States, suffering from uh, price increases in the UK, all they can offer is long term solutions. <laughs> it's like that maybe this is a time for some short term relief for your population. And you can get back to the long term thinking about the stuff that we've been asking you for for years. It, it's uh, an interesting reversal, I think. I want to make sure we talk about what is going on in the Labour Party. Um, and I, I'm going to offer some theories and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like this extended personality crisis, right? A crisis of conviction. You have a, a long running and very expensive purge of supposed anti-Semites from the party. Uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn being smeared uh, throughout his campaign among them. Uh, now you have concerns about insufficient fealty to NATO. And Keir Starmer, who you mentioned earlier, uh, recently set two new conditions for holding the labor whip. One was not to draw a moral equivalence between NATO and Russia, and the other was to uphold the UK commitment to NATO. Commentators have been pointing out that uh, no member of labor has challenged either of those issues seriously. But it, it feels to me like there is a sort of philosophical equivalent in these two concurrent crises, right? And it is a, a commitment to maintaining a worldview that gives Israel and NATO and other upholders of this rules-based international order exceptional status to continue to commit acts that other countries would be condemned for as crimes against humanity or provocations. And so I'm wondering if, you know, if you see echoes of the anti-Semitism purge in this new focus on NATO and what effect both are having on the party. Sure. So what I would say is that what we're seeing is part of a, a long running split in labor in the labor party that goes back decades between sort of nationalist elements, pro empire or pro. Yeah, basically pro imperialist, pro interventionist nationalist elements, uh, which do support typically some form of a welfare state, maybe more progressive, certainly domestic uh, economic policies compared to, um, you know, the Tory party compared to the more right wing party, which aren't interested in any kind of domestically supportive progressive policies and um, a much more actual left wing flank of the Labour Party who are anti imperialist, who want to transition from capitalism towards a democratic post capitalist system, etc. So Keir Starmer very much represents the liberal hawkish wing, whatever he might have been in the 1980s, right? Uh, uh, that what he, you know, for a long time now, he's very much a, a liberal, uh, you know, who carries water for the establishment. That's how he's seen. But, you know, he is a member of the trilateral commission, right? And that is a, as establishment and institution as they come. It's like a sister organization or a spinoff of the council on foreign relations. They once put out a report that said, uh, um, that uh, called Crisis in Democracy, and this was in the 1960s or 70s. 
that came out. Key members of the Carter administration were who were members of the Trilateral Commission uh, helped to produce a report. And they basically concluded that the United States and, and other countries like Britain or Japan were suffering from an excess in democracy. There's too much and we need to uh, uh, have less democracy, if you like. The system can't handle this much participation and this much bottom-up demand for uh, uh, you know, a shift in, in, in how the societies work. And he's a, a member of that group. But yes, it, I would say it's less of an attack on even you know supposed anti-Semites. It's basically a purge of the left. So there yeah. are now eight organizations that you cannot be a member of and be a member of labor. So you're automatically barred now, kicked out if they find out you're a member of or you work with them or you, you've participated in panels with them. So it's more of a purge of the left which has been on 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 the discussion from this is going on from last year anyway, uh, much more than it is specifically just about NATO. NATO is, you know, it's a establishment approved institution and um, they basically don't want people to undermine labor's potential electoral position by under by, you know, criticizing a, a sacred cow, as it were. They want to show that there will be a safe pair of hands. Ultimately, if he wins power, it'll just be by stumbling into power by the fact that the Tories will have been in for so long that they'll they'll elect a ham sandwich over Johnson. But also, I mean, the the way that this is being done, you know, they're trying to purge purge leftists from labor. That's fine. But they're not just saying, you know what, actually, our long term goals aren't similar enough to continue working together in this party. What they've been saying is, you know, with the anti-Semitism purge, you know, you're a bigot, right? You, you're a bigot. You're a racist. You don't belong in polite society. And with this new sort of uh, pro NATO enforcement, it's suggesting that people who criticize NATO's role in this conflict are traitors, which are pretty, you know, unnecessarily vile accusations to make of people who you just politically disagree with. But that is the, you know, if they came out and said, we don't actually support all these progressive policies that you support, uh, then they would lose votes, right? You have to do is say like um, uh, opposition to Zionism is anti-Semitism, right? Um, you have to if you because basically if they believe they could win based on honesty, then they would be more honest and frank. Uh, but they clearly don't believe that they can win based on being clear about uh, ideological differences. And so therefore have to conjure up uh, a sort of straw men in order to break them down, because it's like the majority of the population is quite often quite sympathetic to policies or narratives articulated by Corbyn, even by Corbyn, even with all the successful media attacks on him. Yeah. When there were polls or surveys done, they showed that even just straight up nationalization of like the vast majority of key industries of the country had wide support. I was surprised with that. Uh, this is when Corbyn was was ahead of the Labour Party. This is across the UK. And this was surveys done by right wing libertarian think tanks, which, of course, are not happy about the poll results, but they wanted to have a good assessment, you know, to, to know what to counter. So it's, uh, yeah, there are clear ideological differences, but also class interest differences as well. As you say, if Stormer wins, it will because they would, you know, the population would elect anybody but Johnson. So it doesn't, it, it seems to me, as with the, uh, the quote unquote U.S. left or the Democratic Party, which is not the U.S. Mm -hmm. left, they they continue to present purges like these uh, as part of a winning strategy, but it doesn't seem to be a winning strategy. It seems like a winning strategy might to be be to embrace these more progressive positions. And so even that's a falsehood. And then you say, OK, well, what 
if they don't actually care that much about winning, of course, it's just keeping the, the money from particular donors flowing in. That would be a guess. Yeah, I mean, it is uh, eventually they will get power by default. Like I said, like eventually, you know, whether it's now or five years from now or 10 years from now. Uh, and, and what they are doing is they're also restructuring the Labour Party as well, right? Because there will be still some elements. They want to basically purge any element that, bear in mind, if Corbyn was doing this and probably should have done this, if he had purged the, the right from the party, there would have been never ending, you know, analogies to Joseph Stalin and the Stalinist purges where, of course, people were murdered in the tens of thousands, right, rather than uh, <laughs> rather than just being kicked out of a political party. But that's the kind of thing you would hear about. And yet when it's Keir Starmer doing it, even The Guardian represents it as being um, um, uh, members of the far left being kicked out. So The Guardian, which is a liberal paper, it's not a left-wing paper, but they will publish lefty views. They, you know, which is funny because the far, far left isn't really a term. That's more of an American term describing socialists and communists and others as far left. Um, here, that would just be left-wing. And so really what it is, is is basically to send a signal, I think, to the establishment that we'll be a safe pair of hands. We won't challenge mass surveillance. We won't challenge NATO. We won't challenge the so-called nuclear deterrent, which is not really a deterrent as much as just a, a nuclear weapon system. Basically, we'll just have some slightly different economic policies, but everything else will will say the same. What was Joe Biden's thing? Nothing will fundamentally change. That's exactly what I was thinking. Let's talk a little bit about the National Health Service and how it's managing under this conservative government and the ongoing pandemic. The Guardian reported on the opening of a branch of an American private hospital in London, and it notes that the private health sector in the UK is booming while the NHS is struggling with long waiting lists. Uh, and I wonder, you know, the, the NHS is perceived to have been under attack for a long time. There's been every couple of months there's a new report about American healthcare in, or insurance companies um, looking to the UK as a, as a new market. And so I wonder what you are seeing there and what could happen to the NHS as more private for profit health options open up in the UK. Well, this is just part of a long term process. So anybody who's interested uh, and especially I think even Americans thinking about trying to establish uh, universal health care in the States should watch the documentary The Great NHS Heist. It'll only be like a couple bucks to rent or even buy. Um, I think you can find it on Vimeo. Right. Uh, and you should pay for it, the couple bucks, because it's done by independent filmmakers, by uh, um, uh, Drew McFadden and Dr. Bill, uh, Dr. Uh, Bob Gill. And basically, it goes through what we see is a 40-year-plus-year process of privatization. Because it is such a sacred cow in this country, they could not do it all at once. So literally every government, every single government from Margaret Thatcher's on to now has done its bit in terms of passing a law which has increased uh, the marketization of the National Health Service. It began with Thatcher, continued with Major, continued with Blair and Brown. And then on back to the, to the 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 coalition government with the liberal Democrats and the Tories and now just the Tories in power. So what's happening is this is just the latest stage, right? As the NHS has been so successfully undermined, the idea is that you will then be able to peel away people who can afford to pay for private health insurance, who have just have such insufferable experiences of just waiting now for longer and longer to see a general practitioner, right? The primary care physician. 
that they'll they'll pay. It's not like the quality will be better at a private facility, but you'll just pay to get seen sooner. Yeah. I, for the first time, I've started to do that with a dentist, right? Just because of uh, the lack of being able to to see a dentist, etc. So paying a non-NHS fees, right, which is much more expensive, it's substantially more expensive than the subsidized version. And that's just because, you know, can't wait. I mean, even though I know it's part of a privatization policy, at the end of the day, if you need to see somebody, you need to see somebody, right? So it isn't just about, I mean, practically every ambulance I see in London now is run by this Danish or I, I don't know, it's a European uh, ambulance company called Falk. I think it's like Falcon or something. Um, you see it everywhere. You see um, years ago, they had already outsourced all manner of like uh, with the hygiene, the cleaning of the inside of the of the hospitals. So it's actually th this is almost a side issue building a private because we already have private hospitals in this country. Right. Right. They were always here. It's more of the fact that now that more and more people are going to just give up on the NHS and feel like uh, because of, of the waiting lists. But the waiting lists are engineered as a result of the deliberate undermining of the system. And that's important for people to understand. And if they want to understand how, watch the great NHS heist. Yeah. Can I ask, I think in the United States, because you would be paying for something, right? Having fewer people use the NHS would sort of reinforce the cycle of its uh, underfunding. But I'm not sure that's exactly how it works in the UK. But is it one of those? It, it reminds me of the um, public education discussions here where people say, well, what's wrong with charter schools? What's wrong with private schools? There's nothing wrong with them except that the... the fewer students you have in public education, the less money goes toward public education and the less investment you can make. And so it reinforces uh, its decline into a service that nobody wants to use. I wonder if that process is similar when it comes to the NHS. Well, not necessarily because you still have to pay your taxes and it's right. down to the Treasury to decide how much money it gives to the NHS every year. Right. right? And uh, taxes on tobacco should be going to NHS. I think alcohol, I don't know if by law, taxes on alcohol have to go to the NHS as well. But I think on tobacco, all tax on tobacco, which is like two thirds of the price or however much of, of tobacco. So no, it's more of, it's not just underfunding, it's because of, because all these uh, new hospitals that were built under new labor as part of the privatization agenda, but of course they didn't explain it this way. Most people still don't understand this is what's going on, is that, Hospitals have been put into debt, so they have to now be run as businesses and have been for like 20 years so that they're constantly hemorrhaging money. So it's not simply about pouring more money into the NHS. If you basically reverse all the marketization policies so that, so these hospitals aren't in debt to these private consortiums that they have to pay God knows how much in loans, right? Because once the government stopped just building hospitals outright and said, now you have to get loans from these private consortiums, they inbuilt a poison pill that would ultimately destroy bankrupt hospitals. And that is what's happening. There are millions of pounds in debt. But for most of the existence of the NHS, it wasn't possible for them to be in debt because they were just being built and funded by public funds. And that was it. There were no you know, highly exploitative uh, loaning agreements that that all new hospitals over the last 20 plus years have been built on. And out of curiosity, how much more expensive is private uh, private health insurance? And I'm very I'd, curious. I'd be interested to know. Yeah, how much, how much more it is than paying for uh, NHS services. Well, you don't pay for NHS services. Right, like, of course. Other yeah. de dentistry, right? So it's like, if you're, you don't pay to use an ambulance, you don't pay to, do, you know, you there is no bill when you go to, to, to so I don't, 
So substantially more expensive because everything is more than zero, yeah, right? Yeah. But I'll give you an example. I'll go get my teeth cleaned from a non-NHS price. Let's say that's 150 pounds. What is that? Close to like $250. And uh, let's say when it's subsidized, it's closer to 35 pounds. So maybe that's more like 45, 55. So if I go to an NHS dentist or one where it's subsidized by the NHS, I'll be playing closer to like $45 versus private dentist for the same cleaning, although, you know, they have like more fancy gizmos, right, to take pictures of the teeth, I have to say. Sure. That's, um, that's like $250. Uh, uh, so a substantial difference. And that's just dentistry. I don't do anything else private. Yeah. I just want our American listeners to hear uh, there isn't a bill. Just to, to, just to understand that could be you could live in a country like that. It's not a, it's not a fantasy. No. You could. Even with the destruction of the NHS, you're still getting better results and more people covered than in the United States in terms of the average person, right? Although that won't be forever. Eventually people will will give in. I don't know. We'll see. All right, let's ask you, not moving on to a more uh, optimistic subject here, but I did want to ask for an update on the case of Julian Assange. I understand it's April 20th is the day that the order to extradite him will be issued and then it goes to the Home Secretary to be signed. I think that Assange can still submit a defense against this process. I, I don't want to say there's no hope there, but it doesn't seem very likely that that would come to anything. And then I also understand he can still appeal to the EU Court of Human Rights, but that the UK is under no obligation to delay his extradition while that process plays out. So he could be, you know, on his way to the United States while waiting for uh, the wheels of justice over at the EU court to to turn. And so I wonder if you can tell me if those are correct and, and what his legal team is uh, looking at right now. So um, uh, just to be clear, it's not the EU court. It's, uh, it's the European Court of Human Rights, but it's oh. not connected to the European Union okay. right? because Britain's left the EU. But okay. uh, it's that's part of a human rights body called the Council of Europe that was set up after the Second World War where every member is agrees to be, adhere to uh, the European Convention of Human Rights. Um, yeah, so in theory, they should not be deporting somebody if there's a, an appeal lodged to the European Court, Court of Human Rights. But in, but that doesn't mean that governments don't act illegally. And it's like, what will the European Court do to them other than rebuke them? Mm-hmm. So while there is a potential appeal, first, there is they'll have uh, uh, four weeks from the 20th to uh, appeal to the Home Secretary to reject extradition. Uh, Pretty Patel is a pretty reactionary ghoul. I'd say even a proto-fascist, uh, no exaggeration, so, um, who wants to be prime minister one day. So I highly doubt that she would uh, uh, reject extradition. But, you know, you never know. You still have to put in the arguments. While there is still a, a, an appeal, potential appeal to the European Court of Human Rights, don't forget there's also an appeal for all the grounds they lost on, the, the so-called cross-appeal, the grounds they lost on originally before the magistrate's court right, where that is a politically motivated uh, fan, uh, prosecution, that the charges themselves are a political offense and therefore exempt under the U.S.-U.K. extradition treaty, that this would infringe uh, freedom of the press and freedom of speech guaranteed under the European Convention of Human Rights, um, uh, etc. So he won and then lost on appeal on the human on the risk of suicide. But there's all the other grounds that they lost at that they can then appeal to the high court. So those are two angles of potential appeal. One on the risk of suicide and, and you know, the, that the U.S. government successfully appealed. They can appeal that to the European Court of Human Rights. And then at the high court level, 
they can appeal what they lost at the magistrate's court. So what they may do, if they genuinely believe there's a risk of being deported before the European court gets to hear the case, is then lodge an appeal with the high court in relation to the other grounds, because that would be a UK court. That would be much worse for the UK government, public relations, right, for them to deport somebody when when they had domestic court uh, appeals not exhausted yet that had been lodged. I mean, they shouldn't be doing it even with the European court, but, you know, who knows with this government. But so you think with these appeals that they can still make to the UK government, his actual extradition will not be coming necessarily anytime too soon? Yeah, I think between the uh, I mean, this is it appears that the battle will be continuing like the next six months to a year will be a very key time period. Uh, Things were moving slower during covid. So I think lots of us had the impression that things would continue to move this slow moving forward. But that's because so many things were taking a back seat to, to covid and there were so many delays um, I think now what's happening because we're basically in a sort of a right libertarian situation. So COVID practically doesn't exist in, in the UK anymore. There are no restrictions of any kind. So uh, things are moving much faster now compared to where they were before. So, yeah, there is still it, it is not over yet at all by any stretch of the imagination. But it is a concerning sort of uh, people are being asked to redouble their efforts. Can I ask before we let you go, just what would it what would it mean if if Assange is very unfortunately, if he is extradited to the United States uh, while these appeals continue to the European Court of Human Rights? What does that mean for his legal team? Does that do they have to de- decamp to the United States? Does he need to come up with new new lawyers? What what will they be planning for? I mean, that's an interesting question. It it almost renders moot or academic the domestic case, not that it would have no significance for the rest of us. But if he's deported, if he's actually not deported, but extradited to the United States, then then he'll be fighting a trial there because I can't imagine a U.S. court. Let's say the European Court of Human Rights says he shouldn't have been extradited. Is a U.S. judge really going to say, OK, he back on a plane, he goes back to the U.K.? Nope. Right. So I think the key issue then, if he is in the U.S., will then be fighting the the the, the case in the U.S. Right. Yeah. And, and and hopefully not being subjected to the very conditions uh, which uh, there is a genuine risk that would uh, would lead to a high, high chance of suicide as a result of him being on the autism spectrum and, and suffering from clinical depression and so on and so forth. Questions I hope that we don't have to answer, frankly. That was Mohammed Almazi. He's a freelance journalist. Mohammed, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find your latest work? Uh, the dissenter, uh, Jacobin, um, uh, are, are two key places. Uh, uh, I've been out of out of sorts uh, recently, so I'll be getting back into things uh, quite soon. So that's Kevin Gastola's The Dissenter. Sorry. And uh, Jacobin, people may know that as well. Yep. We'll be looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us, Mohammed. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Apple CEO Tim Cook, in a speech here in Washington yesterday, said that antitrust legislation aimed at lessening the monopoly power of app stores could harm users. Cause harm. If you don't download 
your apps from the app store. Okay. Very scary. Yeah. Cook complained about a process that's called sideloading, where users can download apps without first going to the app store. So why is this a big deal? And have you ever heard of the village of El Zante, El Salvador? Nope. By any chance? As an experiment, an anonymous Bitcoiner gave away $35 in Bitcoin to every family in the village. And as a result, all of the village's businesses began accepting it as currency. And the experiment was on. And finally, Scott Ritter and Pepe Escobar, two outspoken pro-Russian voices, have been thrown off Twitter. We'll talk about censorship on that platform. We're joined by Chris Garafa. Chris is editor of techforthepeople.org and podcaster at Covert Action Magazine. Welcome back, Chris. Oh, John, Michelle, great to be back with you. Thank you so much. I love having you on the show, Chris. It's always so informative and fun. So let's start with this uh, speech by Tim Cook. Uh, You know, the statement he made seemed so innocuous on the surface of things. Uh, You should only download your apps from the approved app stores, the Apple App Store and whatever the, uh, the Google one is. Who cares where people download their apps? But Cook says that there are serious security concerns. What does he mean by that? So there is some truth to what Tim Cook is saying mm-hmm. about just running any old app on your phone or your com- let alone your computer, right? Think about the days that, you know, we you'd have antivirus software on your computer and it would be like, hey, this thing you downloaded, it might be a virus. Or if you didn't have antivirus software, right? Right. You download something like a free version of a game and all of a sudden your web browser has 5,000 pop-ups and your computer's restarting and all of that kind of stuff, right? So there there is a little bit of truth to, to what he's saying. The problem is then that, you know, Tim Cook wants to maintain control, wants Apple to maintain that control of the App Store. Uh, They could provide alternative ways to install software. They could say, um, you know, let me, you know, somebody could say, let me install software that I don't think is secure, which is something you can do on a, you know, a desktop computer, uh, Mac or Windows. You can say, I don't want to install software from the official Microsoft store or the Apple app store on my computer. I understand it's risky. Let me do it anyway. Right. But Apple, let's not forget the financial incentive here. Apple has locked down the iPhone so that, first of all, you know, an app can only do certain things. And that is done in the name of security. An app can't read your contacts without you giving it permission. It can't modify other apps. And that's overall a good thing in most cases. But Apple also controls the payments, and that's something that's been uh, getting a lot of attention in the U.S. as well as the EU, in Japan, in South Korea, and elsewhere, because Apple takes anytime you send money through or you give money to an in-app purchase or buy an app, they get a 30% cut of that, 15 to 30%. And so Apple wants to keep that. They have been in legal battles with uh, game maker Epic. Uh, and other companies uh, in order to maintain their control over that uh, and not let you use other payment systems. They're starting in some areas, um, especially under a court order in the Netherlands, to now allow certain apps to use their own payment systems. But it's a you actually have to put a uh, big warning up uh, if you do that on your app in the Netherlands. So getting back to this issue of sideloading, Apple doesn't want sideloading because ultimately it affects their bottom line. Right. That which makes perfect sense. It's not necessarily that it's dangerous, although I guess it could be. So you would recommend that people use the official app stores to to download. What about um, 
What about directly from the developer's websites? Is that safe? Well, you can do that on your desktop computer. You can go to the developer's website and download software if they allow that. Um, on an iPhone, you just can't do it. It just there is no way to do it. Um, and the highly technical people are going to tweet at me and say there is there there are, but not for the faint of heart. Um, on an Android phone, it's pretty easy to sideload an app. So if you trust the developer and the website that you're getting it from, and there's no other way to get it, you can consider that. Um, but again, just keep in mind that you are running somebody else's code on your device that has probably your whole life on it. But this is the same problem we've been dealing with since the dawn of computers and computer software. Chris, let me ask you about this experiment in El Zonte, El Salvador. What does its success mean in the broader scheme of things? Do you think that if it's attempted in other places, especially in the United States, that it'll make more likely the the idea that Bitcoin would be eventually accepted as a currency? Well, I think the success of El Zante is a little bit uh, overblown. Okay. Um, it is still an extremely poor area uh, of El Salvador, which is, you know, a poor country, not in the least due to U.S., uh, you know, U.S. involvement in a coup and civil war because they were afraid it was, you know, going to go to the communists. So I. Looking at El Zante, you know, I mean, just the fact that they could get $35 worth of Bitcoin, not 35 Bitcoin, but $35 worth yeah. of Bitcoin, and that could make a significant difference. I mean, that is a, you know, that says a lot about quality of life and living conditions in El Zante. Um, not everyone has internet access. I mean, even mobile internet access is extremely hard uh, to to get, you know, to get there. So I, I think this success and this 60 minute story that everyone ha has been talking about, uh, you completely just over overblown. Like I said, I think the government, uh, you know, the the El Salvadoran government has its own Bitcoin, and their two the two recognized currencies in the country are this cryptocurrency. It's not a Bitcoin; it's something else. It's a cryptocurrency and the U.S. dollar. And I think we see a lot of. Uh, countries that have been um, underdeveloped or impacted by imperialism across the Middle East, uh, Latin America, and uh, in Africa, you know, trying to adopt some kind of cryptocurrency as a way around the dominance of the dollar. So I think that's a whole different kind of situation, though, than this private uh, exercise in El Zante. So why why do this in the first place? Well, let's look at who is involved in this so-called experiment, this this Bitcoin beach that they're calling it. Right. Bitcoin beach. Bitcoin beach. Uh, well, there's a guy named Mike Peterson who is involved with this. And there is a backer. Uh, his name is Chris Hunter. And it happens that he's a co-founder of a company called Galoy Money. Now, Galoy Money works on cryptocurrency. That is their thing. They uh, they're not a, a well-known company, but cryptocurrency is all is is their thing. Um, Galoy last year raised three million dollars in a seed round, and they say it's to quote help communities and institutions use Bitcoin as money. Just one of the investors in that three million uh, seed round was Trammell Venture Partners, which has invested in a significant number of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin-related uh, companies and initiatives. Uh, Galoy is just one of them. Um, they said they invested in Bitcoin at the beginning in 2009. Uh, a number of other companies. And 
also Lyft. They were <laughs> one of the uh, investors in Lyft. So this is a venture capitalist firm. Um, they are you know, very much focused on cryptocurrency and also the other half of their portfolio, what they call our b- broader portfolio, is all about uh, this whole Web3 idea and algorithms. So I think Lyft kind of fits in there with the algorithmic profit thing. So it's this is again, this is not a philanthropist doing this because, you know, he thinks that it's going to be really good for the people of El Salvador or even just this one town. It's doing it as a way to show other places that Bitcoin can be, you know, so-called successful. The problem is, how do you convert your Bitcoin to dollars? Yeah. Yes, you can do it if you live if you live on a commune, fine. You can trade and barter and all of that. If you live in a town that only uses Bitcoin, you can do that. But what happens when you need something outside? What happens if you need car parts or to go to a hospital or anything like that, and they don't accept Bitcoin out of your, uh, you know, outside of that one area that you're doing it. What You can't get services. Chris, what do you expect the government's reaction to be? Frankly, I expected a reaction by now, and we haven't really seen one yet. I know that federal law enforcement and the Treasury Department are worried about Bitcoin being used to launder money. They're they're also worried about uh, capital gains taxes. You know, they're not having been any until the last like two years. So what do you what do you expect the government to do in this case? We're seeing a lot of moves towards regulation of cryptocurrency overall in the United States and also uh, in the EU as well. And it makes perfect sense that the government would be doing that. I got to say, though, Bitcoin is not a good way to anonymously transfer money. Just the basic fact of how cryptocurrency works, that there is a the blockchain basically proves every transaction and cannot be changed. Uh, So that history of where every transaction came from and went and the the addresses or Mm -hmm. the wallets that it that they originated at and sent to and the amounts, that's always there. That The whole purpose, right, is that you can't change that history. So Bitcoin is actually a really bad way to be anonymous unless you are taking some very serious steps uh, you know, to protect yourself that really would be out of reach for anyone but the most seasoned you know, criminals who are trying to launder money who also could just find other ways to do it. And I'm talking specifically you know, in the U.S. here. Right. Right. Well, what uh, what do you think the government is going to do to make or let me rephrase that. Do you think the government will do something, anything to make uh, cryptocurrencies more accessible to the public or easier to use than they are now? You know, now you see you see just a very small handful of places uh, accepting Bitcoin as payment, like briefly Tesla did, for example. Uh, There's a pizza place in New York you can pay for a pizza with Bitcoin, but it's otherwise used to, you know, to to speculate, to trade. Do you see that getting easier? I mean, there's a co-working space around the corner for me that has a billboard that says they accept Bitcoin as payment. But like, yeah, we're not seeing widespread adoption, although we are seeing larger banks and financial institutions getting into the, uh, you know, getting into Bitcoin and saying you can buy. I mean, you can buy Bitcoin in Venmo now right in the app. Uh, yeah. And you know, so it is spreading. Yeah. But we also see in that example, the IRS is really pushing, you know, now Venmo has to like report transactions to the IRS as well. So the IRS and the federal government in in general will be interested in regulating and therefore taxing as much as they can. I think it's not about the fact that it's crypto. It's about the fact that people are 
you know, using these various mechanisms to make and send and hold and transfer money. So it will be regulated. I don't think it's going to get easier because of any government schemes or anything, though. Let's talk for a minute about tech censorship, Chris. Scott Ritter, who has been an outspoken supporter of of Russia, was thrown off Twitter last week. He was allowed back on for a few hours with no explanation and then just thrown off again. And in the meantime, somebody stole his Twitter identity and now has a new Scott Ritter page. And it's it's like um, formerly the real Scott Ritter or something like now that. It's new Scott Ritter. Or yeah, something. the yeah. new Scott Ritter. And Scott complained to uh, to Twitter. Hey, somebody stole my identity. Here's a here's a photocopy of my passport and my driver's license to show that I'm actually Scott Ritter. Uh, please take down this account. And they they emailed him back and said, uh, yeah, uh, we investigated and we're going to reject your request because you don't have standing. Scott Ritter wants his account. And he's like, but I'm Scott Ritter. So they say that this didn't violate. Twitter's uh, standards. Uh, what what can somebody like Scott Ritter do uh, when somebody steals your identity? And let me add one other thing. Um, I'm rarely, rarely on YouTube, and usually it's just to watch videos of Greek folk music. Right? I, it's it has zero import to me for politics. And somebody said, "Oh, I saw uh, your your YouTube page. You have some really right-wing nutty things saved there." I said, "What are you talking about? I don't have a YouTube page." And I looked, and there are a dozen somebody somebody took the the YouTube name John Kiriaku and loaded a dozen crazy right-wing uh, you know, QAnon kind of uh, videos. Well, I I wrote to Google and I included a scan of my passport. And I said, I'm John Kiriakou. Somebody stole my identity on on YouTube and I want this thing taken down. I did it seven times and seven times they rejected me. So what do you do in a case like that or in a case like Scott Ritter's? How do you protect yourself? I, you know, I've had this conversation a lot recently, particularly Ooh. around, you know, Scott Ritter and today or, or was it last night? Pepe Escobar. Yeah, I was uh, going to you know, mention Pepe Escobar suspended. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So many. And, and of course, so many others. And this is what we've been warning about for so long. Um, we, we've been talking. I mean, we've been on this show talking about it. And so many other shows talking about the danger of social media, private social media companies taking down posts and, and accounts and pages. Because they happen to, you know, they go against the mainstream narrative. And Mm -hmm. that's what Scott Ritter was doing. I mean, I personally disagree with, you know, some of Scott Ritter's analysis and, you know, things he was saying. But that's not the point. No, that's the point is that he was expressing not dangerous opinions. He was expressing dissenting opinions against certain narratives. And I support his ability to do that. He's a very intelligent person. um, And he should not have been taken down, even, you know, despite what all of this Criticism. So, I mean, unfortunately, getting into, you know, recovering your identity online causes a lot of issues because these kind of fake accounts and fake pages happen so frequently. Um, people who often who are victims of stalking or harassment have fake pages created in their name yeah. that post things. I mean, in your case, it's like QAnon, right wing stuff. Uh, in other cases, it's like sexualized content, pretending to be of them, um, you know, to to drag their names into the mud, so to speak. Um, but, yeah, the, these companies are not set up for this kind of thing. Right. Whether it's Instagram or Facebook, Google, Twitter, they're not set up for it. I mean, Twitter yeah. has its verified accounts and that's great. But when somebody creates a new account 
pretending to be you, it gets into this real gray area for Twitter. Yeah, I think it does. I think it's just, yeah, Pepe Escobar and uh, and, and Scott Ritter, you know, I, I think it is very dangerous. But I think what, what we see happening now is the conflation of expressing a dissenting opinion and an unpopular opinion with calling for violence. You know, and that's right. usually what happens is Twitter, if it if it does explain itself, says something like, oh, either, oh, it was a mistake or you you violated our terms of service when it comes to, you know, call, calling for violence or, or hate speech. And it's just that is a really dangerous thing to do, whether you agree with these guys or not. I don't agree with everything Pepe Escobar uh, posted. Sure. You know, I, th- I think that he's got some things wrong sometimes, but I might not be right. At any rate, he's not calling for it's not violence to disagree with a narrative that is increasingly being pushed upon us. Right. And I think that it is people really should be taking notice. It is frightening. And I do think it's part of the reason why uh, we are seeing politicians in the United States in particular uh, increasingly casual with their use of things like genocide. Right. And, And sort of ramping up the rhetoric they use when it comes to describing the actions of their neighbors like China, like Russia, sorry, their their enemies, right? Like China, like Russia. If you ratchet up the tension and the stakes, it is easier to suggest that anyone who disagrees is is doing something horrible, even if you can't quite find a term of service that specifically applies. I wondered uh, what you made of that, Chris. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, at the beginning, right, it was all of the outrage was about right wing accounts being taken down. You know, I remember Alex Jones being one of the earliest ones. Yes. For his denial of the Sandy Hook massacre. And I mean, like I, I've lived in Connecticut my whole life. I think the guy is vile, but it scared me seeing so many people celebrate this, uh, you know, when his account was taken down. I mean, Donald Trump, of course, his account was deleted uh, right after uh, January 6th. Yeah. But what people weren't talking about was at the same time, the Black Lives Matter pages, the anti-war pages, the cop watch pages that were all also being taken down. And now it's so convenient to say this is a Russian troll. This is a Russian, you know, influencer. This is a Chinese account. You know, if you're not being labeled as state affiliated media, you're just being shut down in general. Yeah. And, you know, these imperialist ambitions, uh, you know, of companies like Twitter to do the bidding of the State Department are completely fully behind that. I would agree. OK, we will leave it there. That was the voice of Chris Garafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org and podcaster at Covert Action Magazine. We're not going to go to a break. We're going to we're going to go into uh, uh, a couple of uh, other stories that have popped up over the course of the day. I can't believe I forgot to mention this one at the the very start of the show. But have you seen the allegations against the Washington commanders and Dan Snyder? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Man, wow, Snyder, what a sleaze. Snyder's I mean, got to go. But yeah, That's people have been begging line. for this for years. You know how many yeah. Wi-Fi, if you walk down the street with your Wi-Fi open, you know how many accounts you'll see that, that are just like, I hate Dan Snyder, <laughs> <laughs> abolish Dan Snyder, whatever. <laughs> Cracks me up. No, so they are accused of keeping two sets of books yeah. to defraud the NFL and also to defraud season ticket holders. Yes. Right? So the allegations are that it... it They were instructed. Oh, man, I lost this paragraph right now. But so people had put down refundable deposits when the new stadium was built in in 1997. Right. um, To to get premium seating. And the fellow who is making these allegations has said that employees were told to continue to make it difficult for people to get their deposits back. And so then just, you know, try to encourage them to give up or forget about it. 
keep that money and then also hide money from the NFL's revenue sharing program by, again, the allegations, keeping two books. Of and, course, and this is completely separate from the the sexual uh, uh, assaults and, and the uh, the culture of sexuality yeah. that he put forth in the uh, in the office. In yeah, the this office. sort of came about because they were being investigated for being an utterly like, oh, sleazy, by the way, they're hostile, committing fraud too. Yeah, place to work. Five million dollars in deposits from customers is uh, as they might have kept five million. Do- I'm a- angrier at that than defrauding the NFL, which sure. is an incredibly wealthy sure. and corrupt organization. But yeah, taking taking money from people who, you know, just wanted to support the team and come get stadium seats and watch them. And you know what Such else is, it makes me so angry is that this this cheap, cheating, lying SOB now wants to leave the station, the uh, stadium in Landover, Maryland. And wants the state of Virginia to build him another brand new stadium so that he can move the the team to Virginia. We don't want the Redskins in Virginia. Yeah. We don't want the likes of Dan Snyder to come with his toxic culture and uh, and to steal our tax money. So anyway, this all comes from a letter sent from the House Committee on Oversight and Reform to the FTC. These allegations are being made by Jason Friedman, who was a former vice president of sales and customer service and worked for Washington for 24 years. Wow. So you would think maybe he knows what he is talking about. Yeah, he does. So a huge, a huge story. If it does result in the downfall of Dan Snyder, God, that would be great. I can't imagine that anything there is actually criminal, unfortunately, but maybe they can find something. Ah, an awful man. And he has the reverse Midas touch, you know, everything he touches just turns to trash. And yet he still manages to stay incredibly wealthy because mm-hmm. once you have that much money, it's yeah. just regenerating constantly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Anybody who wants to, you know, make themselves really angry can dive de- again into the story of how he wanted to cut down a bunch of protected trees for the sight line on his property. Oh I think the God. Washington City paper came after him for that. And then he got into like a personal vendetta with the Washington City paper. Oh, yeah. RIP, by the way, Washington that City I paper, remember. no more physical. They, they've they stopped their physical production now. Or they're going to be only online, which is pretty sad. Yeah, I mean, it I've is. Been reading the city I like paper the city for a long paper. time. Yeah. I, I still read it online just because it's, you know, they have like serious city paper's good. journalists there. Yeah. They have great food reporters. Yeah. Great yeah. food reporters. Terrific columnists. Yeah. I Do you like want to hear lot. some good news? Yeah. Yeah. That would be a nice change. It's about Stephen Donzinger. Oh. Stephen okay. Donzinger. I'm on Donzinger watch because the end of his house arrest is is nigh, very nigh. Great. Uh, but it's not for another 11 days. However, he's just had his ankle bracelet cut off. Excellent. So he's had his ankle bracelet cut off at about day 980 of his detention. He's got 11 days to go. He's also been documenting the... The practices that you witness when you are someone under house arrest, like the times that that the authorities will call you to ensure that you are where you're supposed to be. Yeah. You know, he's he's documented calls at like 5 a.m. Oh, yeah. Really late. And he's saying if I if I had missed this call, you know, that came in at a a outside of office hours. Right. That's come in at a time when people might be sleeping or might be really busy. Then my my freedom is jeopardized. You know, they used to call me all hours of the day and night. It was ridiculous. Um, sometimes as early as nine or 10 at night, sometimes at one or two in the morning, five or six in the morning to start the day, waking everybody in the house up. 
I used to hate that. Yeah. There's also an update on the Fort Bragg body count. We talked about Fort Bragg a little while ago, and I think we're probably going to have to revisit that. We are. Yeah. Uh, Seth Harp, the reporter who has been covering this in some detail, tweeted that the Fort Bragg body count now stands at 101 confirmed stateside death deaths since the start of 2020. Active duty soldiers continue to die at a rate of one per week in January 2022. And there were two more deaths from undetermined causes. So he doesn't have February and March casualty reports yet. But I mean, it, I've, something seems to be going and, on. And, and this is people dying in car accidents, of suicides, uh, from criminal acts. Mm-hmm. It, this is not normal. Yeah. And again, I'm not suggesting that there is a vampire preying no, on still. people at Fort Bragg, but still the, the you know, if if you have people dying at these incredible rates yeah. and again, mostly young, healthy people, it's not it's not like they've got it's a bunch of old folks homes there. Right. You know, right. Seems like maybe someone would want to look for an explanation. Really awful. I have just discovered, John, unless you have something more important that you want to slide in here at the end. uh, There is a new documentary about the hidden dangers of different cosmetic products. I did not see this. This is called it's um, it's a it's a new documentary. I have not seen it. I am only reading about it now. But it talks about a hair product that I've heard of. I've heard of the hair product to Deva Curl, Deva Curl. It talks about a woman who loved it, was a devotee, used it for years and years and uh, started losing her hair. And so uh, this is one of the stories that's highlighted, but it, it's called Not So Pretty um, and dives into this lax regulatory environment for some of these products that women in particular put on their skin and in their hair and on their nails and in, you know, sensitive parts of their body. So that sounds horrifying and fascinating. My God. Yeah. It's always something. Yeah. Also, I've just become aware of the phenomenon of single-use jeans. What? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do you remember Heidi Montag? Yes. So apparently she's getting in trouble for demonstrating their use. She just takes off a pair of jeans and throws them in the garbage. This has got to be a troll. It's got to be a troll. I don't believe it's real for a second. Tomorrow we'll have to update everyone on on the legitimacy of this. We got to go. No time for you to respond, John. Save it to tomorrow. <laughs> I this hate been... Heidi Montag. I'll say that. <laughs> okay. This has been Political Misfits. Uh, on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Woody, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>